Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Thursday, May the 12th, 2016, and this is episode 1785 of the Survival Podcast. And since it's a Thursday, this is the show that is really all about you. These are all phone calls, except for one story today that you have called in to ask questions, make comments, etc. In other words, this is your day to be heard and heard on the Think line. That number is 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Of course, this is not terrestrial radio. It is a podcast. That means it's not live. And that means if you want to be on a show, you want to target next Thursday to be on the show, call that number and follow the example you're hearing from callers today. Be brief, be to the point, ask your question, make your point, etc. in one or two sentences, then give the details. I promise your call will go better that way. It's not a two-way call. It's a one-way call, and things kind of get choppy if you don't follow that formula. I've been doing this eight years. you got to trust me on this one. You know what? It's going to be nine. It's going to be nine years of the Survival Podcast this June. Isn't that amazing? Anyway, before we uh, get to your stuff, let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. What subjects do we have today? One, uh, I have an interview that I want you guys to go listen to for me uh, from the with the makers of the, the movie Vaxxed. And I'll tell you why I really think you should listen to that interview, especially if it's not where you can go see the movie yet. And it'll be a very brief segment because I talked about it at length on Monday, but Guys, I think this might be the most important um, issue in front of us right now that we actually have to deal with government to do something about. I really do. Next, we'll talk about terracing sloped land on the cheap versus giving a landscaper seven grand to do it for you. We'll talk about off-the-shelf ammo today for elk and oryx. Yeah, big old, big old, big game. And you're going to go out there with a little 308. Can you do that with off-the-shelf ammo? You sure can, and I have a great recommendation for that. The discussion on storing items in remote properties in shipping containers and security issues continues. I have some additional suggestions and concerns for you today from a caller and from someone that emailed me that I'll kind of pitch hit for him today in response to this caller. Uh, more on Granddaddy's Gun Club. Somebody called in and they have an interesting issue where they're not going to have children. They don't have kids to pass down guns to and maybe they don't even have nephews, nieces, things like that. And the concept would be that maybe there would be a way to hand those down to other young people. That actually springboards a, something I wasn't going to talk about with Granddaddy's Gun Club just yet. I'm trying to build you know enough people to actually get meetups going and things like that. But um, there is something that I've had uh, with this that I've wanted to, uh, to make part of Granddaddy's Gun Club, and I'll tell you about that today. Um, next, someone says, hey, if you're not supposed to till soil, well, what do you do? How do you get the compost incorporated? What if you need the soil to be loose? How do you handle no-till gardening? I'm going to tell you, it's dead simple. And you'll just have to trust me. And we don't hate the tiller. We just don't use it. That's not, see? What does that mean? It means we might use it, but we're not going to use it every year. Uh, we're not going to probably use it very often. We might use it once. Uh, there is a place for tilling, but it's not continuously. And I'll tell you how to make soil that's amazing with no real work at all. Then I have a question about choosing between non-GMO and organic. And I'll explain to you why it's not that simple as far as to just which one's better and why when you say non-GMO versus organic, what you're saying is, why don't they advertise organic as non-GMO? It's like saying, why don't they call water wet? You know, wet water, that's kind of like non-GMO organic, what that really is. Uh, evac route planning is a, is a big thing. I've been teaching that since the show started. 
uh, to have multiple routes away from where you live or work to get to points of safety because the one that you think you're going to use may not be uh, available to you because of the very disaster you're trying to evacuate from, or it may be so congested there might be other secondary routes. Well, what if you work in a really um, tight urban area where those secondary routes can be dangerous for reasons other than, like they could be just dangerous on a Tuesday afternoon with the sun shining? How do, you, how do you handle that? How do you make decisions about that? We'll talk about that today. We'll talk about the concept of building a public food forest. So you have a city or county or whatever. It's a piece of land. They don't know what to do with it. You have this great idea. You're going to go in and teach them about permaculture, and they're going to build a food forest. Um, I'll give you my quick surmise of that, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and give you some advice on how to do that if you want to make a go of it. And my last question today is, well, how do you parent as an anarchist, Jack? I know you, your kids are grown and all, but you got grandkids around, and, and you're going to be an anarchist, and you're going to have a kid, and you're going to set rules, and you're an anarchist. How does that work? Well, anarchy does not mean no rules. It means no rulers, and that's a very, very different thing. And I'll have some thoughts on that to clean up that today for today's show. And then for those of you today who are, like me, children of the 80s, I've got a song that will take you back to a movie. I'm going to give you a little bit of the script from the end of that movie and tell you how I think it maybe applies to how we think about fighting the system today and the maturity that comes with growing up versus uh, just the uh, complete and total rebellious nature of a teenager. It kind of fits with that last question about anarchy and raising children. With that, before we get into it, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1785, because the episode is 1785. I have, oh, the humanity, death from the skies. I have George Washington is busted. And in other news, a couple bullet points. The Continental Navy is disbanded. Digitalis is discovered. That's the foxglove plant. And they find out that it can help with congestive heart failure, a little... Note about that. It's also deadly poisoning can kill you. But when they used to use actual whole herb digitalis, they almost never killed anybody with it because, well, before you got to the point where it killed you, you started puking your guts out and they knew to back the dose off. Today, they actually make a drug by purifying digitalis and uh, for congestive heart failure and people die from it. The middle level of overdose symptoms no longer exists. Learn that from Dr. Andrew Weil. Also, the Times of London newspaper is established. Today it's called the Times, but it was established as the Times of London in 1788. Let's read George Washington was busted. Apparently the key to fame is to have proper sculptures made. Thomas Jefferson recommends a famous French sculpture to George Washington. George Washington now retired to his plantation at Mount Vernon. As an artist make clay impressions and molds of his head so the bust can be sculpted to his likeness. The same impressions will be used to create other sculptures and statues of Washington's likeness. It is said that the most lasting statements are written in stone. Quote, Men of real talents and arms have commonly approved themselves patrons of the liberal arts, in some instances by acting reciprocally. Heroes have made poets and poets heroes. And quote George Washington in a letter to Lafayette in 1788. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. Washington was seeking fame, but not reality star fame nor viral video fame. Washington, Adams, and Jefferson were seeking fame that lasted centuries. Washington organized his life to fit the model of the ancient Greeks and Romans. After the war, he retired to his plantation to, quote, sit in the shade of my vine and my fig tree, end quote. Roman statesman Cincinnatus uh, was the appointed dictator in order to defeat the enemies of the state. But once the task was complete, he returned to his farm. Of course, that whole model was shattered when Washington became president of the United States, but he managed to release control after that, too. 
it was an amazing feat for the time and not a bad feat even today. I'll tell you, I think that I, one of the greatest gifts Washington gave to this republic was his willingness after two terms as president to step down. And I, I wonder what the nation might look like had he not had the wisdom to do that. I mean, he was not a perfect man by any means. He was quite flawed, actually. But he did know to do that. And the first president that ever broke that was Franklin Roosevelt. And that was in the 1930s. To give you an idea of how long that tradition, it was simply by tradition that other presidents simply stepped aside after two terms. And then after FDR's four terms, that was enough of that. And even our Congress that won't put term limits on themselves said, yeah, we should do something about this. If one party's going to stay in control, that's fine, but it can't be the same person for you know more than eight years at the head of the ship. Um, I think there's a good case in there for term limits for our elected officials today. I really do. But uh, I, I also wonder, had Washington not done this, and even if... Even if you know we didn't have a lot of presidents go more than two terms, would we have made that change after FDR without Washington setting that precedent? And I don't think we would have, and I think the nation would be far worse off for it. I think as bad as our government is, the longer someone can remain entrenched, the greater the damage they can do. And it is not an easy thing to give up power, and we should respect those who are willing to do so, especially voluntarily. Next up, let's hear from our sponsors before we uh, get into today's topic. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at knifekits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was... Do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. All right, and with that, I want to start out with, uh, again, this wasn't from an email, but I found a, uh, an interview uh, with the makers of uh, the movie Vax, two of them, on Coast to Coast AM that's on YouTube, and you can just... You know, listen to it. It's a video, but it's really audio. And um, I, I really recommend that you go listen to this and, and understand exactly what's going on. And I, I just want to kind of restate this again, because every time this topic comes up, people say, oh, that's the movie based on a, a study that's been debunked and disproven uh, that was a fraud. Okay, first of all, <laughs> the study that they're talking about when they say that has not been disbunk debunked and disproven. All of the other co-authors of that uh, study ha have retained their medical licenses and still stand behind it, and it has not been disproven. It's actually been corroborated by a number of studies. And when you point that out, what people say is, those other studies weren't, they didn't have anything to do with vaccines. You're correct. They didn't. And you know what? Andrew Wakefield's study didn't have anything to do with vaccines. Andrew Wakefield's study was about the link of a correlation between a, a type of bowel um, uh, disease and autism. And in that study, talking to patients and actually listening to them, something more doctors could learn to do, listen to their patients, he found that a significant number of these autistic children that had this inflammatory bowel syndrome 
also had parents who reported they were normal and developing normal until they received, at 15 months, as recommended, their MMR vaccine. And that led him, not in the study itself, but to later say, hey, look, maybe we should think about, like, at least breaking these, these, these vaccines into three separate vaccines instead of giving them all together. That's what caused all the shit. Okay, but the movie mentions that for about two minutes. Okay? The movie is about the CDC, the CDC committing criminal-level fraud in a totally different study because when they ran the study, it gave them a result they didn't want, that it was a major, major contributing factor when you looked at the risk rate between autism and, and children who had received the MMR vaccine. So they fudged the numbers. They lied. They broke their own rules for how to report the data. And there are handwritten notes on the documents by the people in it saying that that's what they were doing. And a whistleblower came out and explained that by telling one of the researchers that did this, If you request these documents on, under public information, you'll find what you need to find. He couldn't, without putting himself in jeopardy of going to prison, say what was going on, so he simply pointed the researcher under freedom of information into the right direction. I am challenging you, no matter what you think you know about this issue, to trust me enough to go listen to this interview at least, and to learn more, and to verify or disprove the claim that I've given you that the CDC committed fraud. Okay? And if you come to the conclusion that the CDC committed fraud, I want you to step back for a second and think about what that really means for this issue and for everything else they've been telling us, not just about vaccines, but medications. And I would like to point out one more thing, and I will let this horse go for a while without beating it again. Many of you distrust your government on so many things, why do you just then turn around and implicitly trust them on this? Because they're doctors, as though doctors aren't humans? If, if someone is capable of committing fraud as a lawyer, someone is capable of committing fraud as a doctor. I'm sorry, that's just the reality. Please take a look at this. I'll link to the, the uh, interview uh, in today's show notes. I, I'm challenging you to, to give it a listen because... The people that actually experienced it can explain it a hell of a lot better than I can. And if this movie comes near you, go and take people with you. Take them against their will, bribe them, do whatever you have to do, get them to go see this movie. There's a reason they don't want you to see it. And with that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack. Sean in Georgia. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Question is, is there a way to bring in cheap fill to fix a sloped backyard? Uh, background is obviously the backyard is sloping, and if I bring in fill, I can have more usable real estate. Called the landscape company, and they quoted seven thousand dollars to bring in the appropriate compacted and do it all the right way. But want to know is there an alternate way that would get the same result? Have unlimited access to wood chips and logs and all that. Don't know if that would make a mess and just compact down, or maybe you know, a couple of years of filling it in with that, and then I can finish it off uh, with a much cheaper quote because I would need less fill. So didn't know if you had any alternate suggestions or just stick with doing it the right way and bringing in the appropriate filter. 
appreciate your thoughts and appreciate your show. Thank you. Bye. All right. So the answer is yes and no. Okay. As far as whether or not you should take that approach of like trying to replace some of the material, uh, cause that would be a major expense, right? Is bringing in that much dirt. Um, and that's probably a big part of what the landscape company is charging you for. Uh, and another question is uh, how quickly do you want it done and how much time do you have? And, you know, what is done right? So to me, if you're talking about leveling a sloping piece of land like this, you're probably not talking about building it up so that it goes out to like a big giant drop off at the end. You're talking about more of the eating an elephant one bite at a time. So we're going to take a certain amount of that slope and terrace that and then go down and terrace again and terrace again and terrace again. If I'm wrong about that, then I'm really not sure how to advise you because without seeing the actual degree of slope, the distance back, what have you, you know, I've seen people, if it's a smaller lot, you might just be building a great big retaining wall at the end and then filling it in. But for $7,000, I don't know how big of a retaining wall you would be building. So I'm thinking more of a step terraces. So you can do that, and you can certainly use some of this woody material as part of your fill. Now, you're right. If you take wood chips and put them on the ground and then take like a tiller and till that in, what you generally get is something approaching concrete. And we'll talk about, you know, how just putting the wood chips on the top change it in another question today, so I won't go into it now. But So you don't really want to do that. But taking logs and wood chips and putting them down and then completely burying them over is more of a culture type thing. We're now creating a wood core. So I have two videos that address doing just this that tell you how to use a simple A-frame level or a laser level to find out exactly where you want to build your terraces, how high to build them, and how to fill them in. That's on YouTube. And then I have a video that was in a series I did following that one that talks about just this, putting wood material in the beds. So I'm not saying not to do it. This is my caution. If you go in there and you build up like two feet of wood chips and then put a foot of dirt on top of it, what is inevitably going to happen is as those wood chips break down, they're going to have to create a sinking effect. And you're going to start having probably places where you start getting outflows from your terrace and erosion problems and holes that you're not going to want. If you're doing something more like we're going to put down a layer of wood chips, a layer of soil, a layer like a lasagna, or we're going to go in and we're going to lay you know, wood on the ground up to a certain level. You have to figure it out. My video should help you with that. And then we're going to hit that with some wood chips, and then we're going to bury that with dirt, and then maybe put in a couple inches of wood chips, like a layer, and another layer of dirt and do that. We can actually build very constructive soils that way. So it has a lot to do with how deep is this, how big is this, how much material are we talking about. But if you end up with too much wood core, too much wood core in one of these situations, you end up with it being buried like that. You end up with an anaerobic system. And that's not a good thing. So you want something, and you're compacting it, you're definitely going to be anaerobic. Now, if we're talking about, you know, we're going to go out in a terrace, and out by the base of that terrace, we're going to be like five feet deep at the base of that terrace. And we're going to go put like two feet of fill with wood and chips down there, and we're going to cover that over. It probably isn't going to matter very much, because that wood is going to break down very, very slowly, and it's going to be down at a depth where you're talking about your subsoil depths anyway. 
Um, but if we have it like filled to the top and then just like it's just wood and then we just bring in you know 20% dirt to cover everything and make it look like dirt, you're going to get all types of different layers of wood breakdown and a lot of that's probably going to go anaerobic on you. And again, if you if you till wood chips and dirt together, at least for a time, you get something that approaches the, the hardness of concrete, and it's not good. So you're going to have to balance that equation for yourself. I'll refer you to the videos, and with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, it's JR from Oklahoma, by way of New Mexico. Got a couple questions. What 308 off-the-shelf ammo would you choose for Oryx and Elk? Also, do you have any recommended shooting bipods or tripods to get a of all the scrub brush and mesquite out in West Texas, New Mexico? Details. I was fortunate enough to draw orcs, elk, and deer this year, so pretty excited about that. Getting some flack from my buddies about using 308, and let alone going with the Smith & Wesson MP10 18-inch barrel 308. I ended up choosing the rifle because I'll be inheriting a Winchester Model 70 in 270, and a Belgium Browning BAR in 30-06 from both of my fathers. And kind of the natural place to fill the gap with those on um, big game was looking at 7mm mag or 308. Also, the AR-10 function stacked pretty well for me. Um, familiar with the platform, great detachable, dependable, interchangeable magazines. The muzzle brake can support suppressor use, very reliable, Interchangeable uppers for different optics barrels, combos, and the reviews that I'm seeing, the, when you compare that to the same caliber bolt guns, you're dealing with sub-MOA groups. So that's what most people are talking about. And also, it weighs 7.7 .7 pounds naked, so that's pretty cool. Um, as to the scrub brush... No way I'm going to get to go prone on these hunts, so any tips, tricks, gear in regards to shooting from monopods, bipods, tripods, shooting sticks, etc. Thanks for all you do, Jack. We really appreciate it. All right, so just starting out, I'm not in love with the idea of an 18-inch barrel on a 308 when we're stepping up to a game of this size, but I don't have a problem with it. But if I was if I was purposefully buying a rifle, uh, to uh, to hunt big game with in 308, uh, I'm going to be much more a fan of things like a 20 to 22 inch more standard length barrel. You will lose a little bit of velocity, you will lose a little bit of efficiency, but it is no doubt that if you're going to have a 30 caliber uh, big game round in an 18 inch barrel, 308 is the way to go. The the shorter cartridge case, the more efficient burn, you're going to have a much better performance out of that 18 inch barrel than a 306 out of that 18 inch barrel. I had a friend that had a Remington 760 in the 18-inch carbine uh, length in 3006, and when he shot that thing, he saw this big red flame come out of the end of the barrel. Uh, and, and it looks cool, but that's all powder that's not being burned inside, where I've seen with shorter barrel 308s much less of that effect. So it's fine. As far as the, um, the off-the-shelf round I would recommend... There's a lot that would be okay. Any good quality ammunition with like a nozzle or partition or something like that would be fine. But I have no qualms about making uh, a firm recommendation here. Federal premium, 180 grain, trophy bonded tip. And I have a video you can watch from Federal that talks about this new ammo that they have with trophy bonded tip. This comes from the trophy bonded bear claw which until the trophy-bonded tip bullet came out, the trophy-bonded bear claw was what I considered the ultimate bullet. 
Um, and it doesn't mean I used it every time I hunted big game or anything like that. Just if you were really concerned about maximizing the potential of a round and minimizing the, the potential of any sort of ballistic failure, it was the bomb. It is a it's basically solid copper all the way back to the shank, and then it has a lead-bonded core. And what they've done with the, with the trophy-bonded tip has gone to a, a ballistic tip um, and made some improvements to the bullet as a whole. Uh, the accuracy out of them is fantastic. And I would tell anybody that's wanting premium-quality ammunition, you know, that the best-quality stuff that you can buy off the shelf, that you, 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 could, you may be able to find places where you can do as well as, but you're not going to do better than federal premium stuff. It's expensive, but when you're talking about ammo for hunting elk and, and oryx and, and mule deer, and you're going on that hunt, and when you pull the trigger, you want to know that you can have complete faith in that ammo, it's, it's as good as it gets. I would tell you that in many instances, I would prefer using federal premium over my own hand loads. Um, is, is I consider myself to be a very good hand loader, uh, but I have immense faith in the quality of Federal's quality control above even my own. So that's the that's the round. I, and I'm not going to justify why 180 versus you know 165 or 150. I'm just telling you for all around performance out of 308, you can't do better than that, and it will be more than adequate for animals to the size you're talking about. Next up on shooting sticks and 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 what have you, the product that I actually like best is uh, a monopod that's made by Primos. Uh, I really like the way it feels, the way it fits. It's lightweight. The way that it's designed to work and, and kind of fit your hand. Um, and I'll put a link to it on Amazon. It sells for about 50 bucks. That said, so for years, uh, I hunted with my, my old uh, little Marlin uh, 22, model 25, 22. And I had this branch that was broken off of a willow tree. And I just realized when you asked this question, I don't know whatever happened to it. But it was this kind of unique branch that got broken off a weeping willow. And it had this kind of little kink in it. And when I looked at it, I was like, if I cut that down, that would make a heck of a walking stick and probably a good monopod for uh, a rifle. And I peeled that thing and I stained it with like a like a honey walnut or like a golden pecan or something like that. And then I hand finished it with true oil and it looked beautiful. And I have no idea what happened to that stick. But my point was it was a solid base and you laid your rifle on it and you shot it. It, it improved your accuracy a great deal. And uh, when I would go hunting in places with my 22 where you're out of the, so you're in the trees and whatever, you, you just lean on a tree, take a strong side or a weak side rest on a tree or what have you. But sometimes I would go hunt rabbits and groundhogs and things like that. And I'd throw the rifle on sling and I would just use that as a walking stick. And it was more than adequate for the task. So in the end, you're talking about a stick with a place that the rifle can rest. So my biggest advice for you isn't which one, but to find something that you feel will work for you and go out and practice with it. And for the love of God, do not practice with federal premium ammunition when you're practicing. Uh, get out some green and yellow box Remingtons or something like that and give it some practice. And practice any position you can conceivably see yourself ending up in. You're saying where you're at, you won't ever be prone? I don't know. It's It all depends. Probably not because basically it's not just that you don't want to lay down on that brush. You can't see over it. But you never know where you'll end up. Practice, you know, a seated position, resting on the knees and things like that as well. Because you may find overlooks 
where you can sit up on a rock or, or something like that. Because even in very flat country, there's often elevations that you can use to your advantage. Sounds like you can do mostly spot and stock anyway. Monopod is a great idea. And determine your, your, your competency at range and then stick to it. If, it's, if the animal's too far, figure out how they're moving, create an intercept pattern, get closer, watch the wind, and good luck on the trail this year. Hopefully you, uh, you hit a, a triple crown with that. That'd be pretty cool to take all three. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, I just want to give a follow-up to the gentleman that asked about the shipping container out on his remote property and security and things about those. Um, it's what I do for a living. I run um, a big terminal for shipping containers and also run corporate security, so it, you know, I pretty much know about all there is to know about this stuff. And a suggestion that I have is if you, uh, if you have farm equipment out there, you can get forks for a tractor. And if you buy a couple of these things, you can cut, you can find these things for about a thousand dollars a piece. And especially the twenties, you can move with a couple forks. And if you have something that's a little bit more expensive, you can butt that container to another one or to a tree or something of that nature where you can't open those doors. And that's the best security. And that's tough to do, you know, obviously, uh, but it is an option. Um, and as far as the locks, you're absolutely right. I've had so many things stolen and things breached into because locks are just locks. Um, and the retainers that are on there, they're actually easily cut as well. Uh, so that's one of those things you have to really be careful of. Just because it has a, a good lock on it, the retainers are probably easier to cut uh, than the actual locks are. Uh, there are some bar locks out there, but then you have to put a lock on those uh, that will actually secure the, the, the two doors together. Uh, but um, just wanted to throw that in there. Um, and for any concerns about venting, there are actually vents on those containers on the uh, on the upper left-hand and right-hand corners back there by the post. So anyway, just thought that might be helpful. If it's not, it's okay. okay. So that's an option if you want to remote store stuff in shipping containers is come up with some way to block the entrance, uh, something movable, whether it be the container itself or possibly some other imp impediment. Um, I also kind of pointed out that somebody had emailed in about this issue and said, well, one thing you can do is if you have a welder, you can weld the, weld the, the handles closed. And then you just have to bring a grinder with you to cut it off, and that would impede progress. And another individual that sounds like he's in kind of the same situation where he's dealing with a situation where they store a lot in containers said, man, since, since grinders went um, uh, cordless, th th every thief has a grinder. You know, so I, I still think that might be an impediment that might slow down thievery in a more remote location. Um, a lot of times people that steal from things that are in remote locations, they're not the kind of people that are kind of scouting it out. It's a target of opportunity thing. If the opportunity presents itself, if they have what they need to get in, they'll do it. I'm not saying they won't come back. I'm saying every, here, here's the point. Every form of security that you create for property is something that slows down a criminal makes it more difficult for a criminal, things like that. Um, I'm sure if we put our heads together, we can come up with ways that, that make this even more difficult, but the person that emailed me that I'm talking about said the same thing I said. The best thing would be to make it where you don't see it. If you can make it disappear, then you're, you're really, really in good shape. So there's a lot of things like that uh, that you can, you can think about doing. But, I, again, I want to truly caution anybody that thinks about burying one of these things to realize it's, a, it's an engineering problem, that, it, 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 that there is a right way to do it. 
Um, I'll put a link to a video on YouTube today of uh, a, a couple that built a house out of two shipping containers and how they actually did it by pouring concrete on the roof to give you an idea of the way you would do it properly. And that's going to get into such an expense that it may not be worth doing. But if you were doing it to build a dwelling remotely, then you'd have very secure storage because people can't steal things that they don't know exist. And I think that's a big part of this. I think that maybe one of the better ways to utilize this would be to create something that basically just looks like a big dirt pile or maybe it is underground, but it's not really covered. You're just obscuring it from from, from being able to be seen is, is the best way to go. But um, if anybody's done this successfully, I'd love to hear from you on it because it's a shame we have this problem because shipping containers are ideal for this. We take that remote piece of property, we can store equipment in there, it stays dry, it stays good, You know, it has some level of security. And if we ever move there then we can do so many things with that piece of, uh, of material, that piece of infrastructure that are valuable to us. But thieves are thieves, and that's what they do. They steal. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. It's uh, just a comment about your uh, Granddaddy Gun Club uh, idea. I think it's a great idea. I think it's uh, farther reaching than you know. Uh, my grandfather passed away about a year and a half ago, and he left me, you know, uh, all his old hunting rifles, hunting shotguns, that sort of thing, quite a collection um i'm not having kids uh but you know i honestly I, i've received some duplicates and i could sell these duplicates for you know 100 bucks here 40 50 bucks here uh but i would rather join something like this and see those guns go to a uh you know a kid uh a teenager that's that's interested in using these hunting rifles, these uh, you know, shotguns, rifles, just point twos, twelve gauge shotguns, pump actions, just general stuff like that. I'd rather see those guns, I'd rather pass them off to somebody um, who's gonna use them in the same way that my grandfather did when he was a teenager. And you know, the money's not important, so I'd rather give them away like that. So I think you have a great concept. I think it's a great idea. I think it's gonna work. Um, so cheers. Thanks for all you do. So the basics, for those that may not have heard yet, of what the Granddaddy's Gun Club is, and you can just go to granddaddysgun.com to learn all about it and become a member for free, is that we're creating groups of people all over the country, small groups that meet together, uh, that have campouts and group shoots and skill set development and things like that. And within those groups, as a, an older person decides it's time to hand down a gun, to a younger person in their family or possibly outside of their family, as you heard here, that it be done at one of these events, that we've done on one of these meetups or campouts or shoots, and to build that concept of tradition. And Granddaddy is just the overall overriding thing inspired by the song Granddaddy's Gun, which I've actually learned was written by Rhett Atkins, covered by uh, Blake Shelton, and then later covered by Aaron Lewis. So Aaron Lewis is the one you're most familiar with because, well... It's the best version. It's interesting to listen to the other two versions because it's like that's a good song, but it doesn't have passion. When you when you listen to Aaron Lewis play it, you feel like it's a real story about him, and that's just what makes it a fantastic song. But Granddaddy is just like a, a placeholder for the older generation. Women are welcome, you know, and you could be handing down a gun to you know. I would expand this to the gentleman that called in. I don't know if you have any, but you have nieces and nephews, uh, or maybe younger brothers, or some relationship that you could involve would be great. But if you don't, then going outside that fold is fine. 
But here's kind of an early leaking now of where I want to go with this. I was just going to sit on this until, you know, there's a thousand members because we're up to over a hundred, almost 200 members already. Um, and as we get enough to actually start getting some organization going where people start to say, hey, let's meet up and at least talk about this over a beer, figure out where we can go do this, that type of thing, and start to get some actual groups on the ground. Then we would say this, but now with this coming up, I think it's important because there's a lot of people out there that don't have heirs. They're like they're the end of the line for their family or whatever. Well, that 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 gun is part of your heritage and your tradition, and it can it can go to someone else and indeed live on. But this is the other thing that I've learned over the years of doing this show. There are a lot of people out there that are adults that want to learn more about guns and don't have anyone to teach them. And they can take a class like defensive pistol or whatever, but they, what they really want to learn about is rifle craft and, and not so much just defensive stuff. That's just like some one dimension of, of what we're talking about. They want to learn to hunt and fish. They want to learn about the outdoors. They want to learn about gun safety. They want camaraderie. And they just don't know anybody. And I think if you think about it, if you, if you do have people you go out and shoot with, imagine now they all move away. How would you find someone else to fit in with? Now, where I was, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, there's a lot of like local rod and gun clubs and stuff like that, and, and that's fine. And that's kind of like this on a, a different angle because most of those places really are places people go get drunk in, in bars uh, with loopholes in the in the in the drinking you know regulations and what have you. But there there are sportsmen and hunters and stuff there that hang out and you can meet people. But imagine you live in you know Atlanta, Georgia, and you work a typical corporate job and you want this type of environment. So what I want to do with Granddaddy's Gun Club as 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 we start to get some some legs under us and we actually have things going on is have the ability for some people to step up basically and identify themselves as a potential mentor. And I think this has to be done with other adults because of legality issues. But what that would basically mean is if there's someone in the area that's heard about this and wants to be part of it, but they feel that they don't have enough knowledge what have you yet that that person would be willing to go to the range with them, to talk about guns with them, to help them make selections and things like that. Because here's how I feel about this. There's 55 million gun owners in America. If every one of us would create one more, that'd be 110 million, and you can forget about screwing with the Second Amendment for, for another five generations if we do that. It's over if we do that. And this is one way we can incentivize that and help with that. And if we had this mentorship program, then individuals like this would have people, even if they weren't the mentor, right, that there could be this additional outlet for handing down these heirlooms because you may feel that I don't have a place to hand this down. As far as bringing younger people into it, teenagers, kids, things like that, I think that has to, for legality, to be with uh, a relative and and what have you or you know that's between the child and their parent and like the brother-in-law or what have you how that works i i can't see creating a program where the organization itself because it's not really an organization it's just a concept it's it's a leaderless organization i'm not in charge of this i don't run this i'm just setting it up enabling it with a website that in the end, the individuals make their own decisions, but I can't see like officially sanctioning the concept of like being like big brothers, big sisters. I, I think that's all kinds of bad. But I do think there's, you know, once somebody's 18, they're an adult. And I do think there is a tremendous opportunity for mentorship of these young adults. And then if, if we can start doing that, you may find that a lot of them do have related to them minors that they can mentor, right? So 
that's kind of where I see this going in one of its many dimensions is this this mentorship program where you know there's no certifying or whatever but you know, I'm an experienced person I have guns I've been doing this my whole life if there's someone in our area that wants to be part of our club that feels they they need someone as a mentor I'd be happy to mentor them and people like the guy that called in right here are perfect for that Because in that mentorship, you find the person to, to turn that over to at the appropriate time. I don't think this is just about children being gifted with guns by their grandparents or their parents. I think this is about generational connections and tradition. And having these guns go down for many generations and thinking about, well, maybe five, six handoffs ago, this gun originally came from a mentor who wasn't related to us, but now is part of our family. Um, through legacy, because my family, you know, is through marriage and adoption. My son is my son through adoption. My grandson is his son, really, through adoption. So my my soon-to-be granddaughter is my son's actual daughter, but granddaughter. But I have no blood relation to my grandchildren. They're still my grandchildren. There's a legacy there. There's a, a, a parental legacy. I did the job of being a dad to my son. Well, a lot of the things in today's day and age, there's a lot of young men and young women out there that haven't had a really strong father figure, mother figure, what have you, that could use that in someone just maybe even just a little bit older than them, but they didn't have the experience. Uh, I know it was difficult for me being a young father because I didn't know what to do. I mean, I was, I was in my early 20s, and all of a sudden I've got a seven-year-old child dependent upon me, and I had very weak parents in many ways and especially in my teenage years when everything exploded with them um, basically having an alcoholic and a drug addict of parents that doesn't work out real well I did the best that I could and, and many people can still do well after that but some people really could use kind of that mentorship and this would be another way to provide it and there's a brotherhood among firearm owners and people that participate in outdoor activities and things like that a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a fraternity a familial, like expanded family. And if we're going to save our rights, we need to band together as a family. So that's where I want to take part of Granddaddy's Gun Club. Great call. Uh, again, to learn more, go to granddaddysgun.com. Hi, Jack. This is Craig in Utah. I recently listened to your interview with Ben Jewett. It was episode 1592. And in that, uh, both you and Ben agreed that roadkill in your garden typically was not a good idea as it has an adverse effect on the bioactivity in the soil. Anyway, I was wondering if you would recommend any alternatives. I've always heard that it's good to have loose soil for, say, growing root crops, and then how would you go about introducing compost in your garden? Anyway, any thoughts would be appreciated. Thank you. So let's let's talk about how I did this with raised beds in Mansfield, and I'll, and I'll, I'll tell you how you could possibly use tilling as an initial, just an initial uh, establishment as well, though you may not need to. So when I'm decided to put a garden in at my house in Mansfield, typical suburban, you know, third acre lot type thing. I built uh, six four by eight wood frame uh, raised beds using landscaping timbers, the, not the ugly railroad ties with creosote on them, just good old fashioned landscape timbers. And um, of course, that meant I needed material. So I went out and got a few truckloads of just, they called it topsoil. And bluntly, it was dirt. And then I would bring that in and fill the raised beds with it. As I was doing that, 
you know, and I want to explain. I, I was not yet doing the podcast when I built these, these beds. I, w- I built these beds years before the first podcast. I didn't know anything about permaculture yet. I was just doing what I had learned and adding to what I, you know, learned from my grandparents and what I had kind of added to it over the years myself and just doing research and stuff like that. So then I went to the, you know, Lowe's, Home Depot, whatever, and I bought like four different kinds of compost. And I would put a bag of each of those four different kinds of compost into each raised bed and then maybe a third of a bale of peat moss in there and mix that with that dirt. And that gave me a great starting point. And I understand if you're not doing raised beds and bringing material in, you're going straight into the ground, that you may not do that, okay? But I'm just telling you what I did. Now, even with those compost additions, they were pretty big beds. This dirt that I brought in was just listless, lifeless dirt. Calling it topsoil was pathetic. It was dirt. Um, it, you know, it was not soil. There was nothing living in it. And what I did next then was once that bed was prepared, I put a layer about an inch deep of compost across the top of it, and then I put about two to three inches of wood chips on top of it. And then when I would plant... I would pull back the wood chips plant and then return the wood chips around that. By the end of the first year, it looked pretty good, but it wasn't really, really banging yet. And it would still get compaction and stuff because that dirt that was supposed to be topsoil was really, really fine particle. Then it would begin to, to, to compact. And of course, it was sitting on top of black, you know, Texas blackland clay, which is just one of the worst clays ever to deal with. So as that would get incorporated, that clay would compact, and it would only go as deep as the beds and what have you, and then you're down in that compacted clay. So as you go into the fall season and you, you take out a lot of your vegetables, you're going to plant new lettuces and stuff like that, I would just, once I had harvested out of bed, I'd get the rake or the hoe, and I would pull all of the wood chips back. I would put down a couple inches of compost, wouldn't till anything in, return those kind of listless, used-up wood chips, and put a new layer of wood chips on top of it. I did that every year. I never tilled it. I never mixed it except the first time. Five years later, as we were getting ready to leave that property, I could take my hand. Now, these beds were about uh, eight inches deep, okay? And so it's black clay under that eight inches. I could take my hand and I could just push my fingers and my arm into the soil to my elbow. That's almost two feet. Like That's probably more than two feet. And I could reach way down into where that clay was and grab and pull up and pull it out, and it looked beautiful. Okay, so how does all that compost go down that deep and get down there? You don't till the soil. All the little creatures that live in the soil, the worms and uh, insects and everything else and, and, and microorganisms in there that create the soil food web, move that material up and down through those layers, and they do it all for you. You don't have to do anything. Now, let's say I'm not building raised beds, Jack. I got, a, I got a grass field out here. There's dirt there. There's no reason for me to do a raised bed. I want to cut out the sod, mark out my bed lines, and plant that. Am I okay with tilling that? Yes, but here's a couple things. One, if you have grass like Bermuda grass that is you know, propagated by runners or any other grass that does that, which many grasses do, St. Augustine, etc., If you till that grass into that dirt, you will have grass problems for the rest of your life. So you would be a lot better off in that instance to sheet mulch everything and kill the grass. 
and then create some sort of physical barrier that the grass has to climb up of and over to get into your mulch. Or what will happen is you'll have this beautiful area and the grass will forever invade from outside. It will be difficult to control. We'll create something like a physical barrier out of landscape timbers or cinder block or something like that. As you see that grass coming over it, it's really easy to hit it with a string trimmer or whatever to help keep it at bay. So you've got to eradicate it. And probably the best method of eradication is to get a sod cutter in and cut that sod out. Once that's done, however it's done, or if you don't have that problem, you just have dirt to work with. If you went in, marked out your beds, laid down a bunch of compost, some organic matter like leaves, uh, maybe some peat and stuff like that, and went in there and rototilled it to establish it, I wouldn't have a problem with it. It may not be necessary, but it, it will give you quick results. But let's talk about why it gives you quick results. So you, you murder a lot of the soil life when you do this. When you murder it and it dies, right, so all these little organisms die, they go into decomposition and they release nutrient, and that's why it seems to work so well. But this is what people that till and till and till and till and till and till and till find, and it's why they believe you need to till, which is ironic. They till their soil and it's beautiful, and they get rid of all the weeds and stuff, and by the end of the season there's weeds everywhere, so they till it again, and then in the spring it's compacted, it's hard, and it's full of weeds. So they till it again. And then it just keeps, you, you become convinced because it, it is nice after you're done tilling it that if I didn't till it, it would never be like this. But you're actually making it more and more compacted. The other thing you're doing when you till is those tillers can only go down so deep. And at the point that they reach their, 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 their lowest point, their, their, their reverse apex, whatever you would call that, right? Where they're pressing there, now they're compacting the subsoil. And they're creating a hard pan, so if that tiller can get down 8 inches, at 8 inches it's creating a hard pan of compaction. Now, does that mean you can't till, you should never till? I mean, Curtis Stone tills with some of his beds that he does his spin farming with, and it works, and it's fast, and it's rapid, and he's doing it commercially, and it makes sense for him in those areas. But he's tilling shallow, he's tilling quick, and he's just basically getting that bed in a state for the next planting. And he's in a continuous production cycle with that so that makes sense for him but for most of us we would be better off mulch 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 that's all you have to do and don't worry about getting the compost in the soil pull back the previous mulching put your compost down return the previous mulching add new mulch that it literally is all you have to do i'll tell you another thing i am not opposed to weed block a lot of people are it's not organic whatever i don't just please Take a break. Um, weed blocker makes your life easier, especially if you're doing raised bed gardening. If you're doing, you know, a couple hundred feet of beds that you're using for a kitchen garden, a small production garden, something like that, then, you know, good quality weed blocker, and it doesn't last 15 years, that's crap. Uh, after a season or two, you pull it up and you redo it. And, and it, it also, since it breathes, it helps the soil. Or you do it with cardboard. It all depends on what you're dealing with and how much maintenance you want to put in. right? If you do it with cardboard, it works great for a season or two. But if you have Raleigh, St. Augustine, Bermuda grass, things like that, they start encroaching and getting into the mulch. And you know, so the mulch forms soil. They'll form into that mat, and they become a, a never-ending problem. So think about barriers to keep out that encroaching grass and eradicating it where the garden's going to go in, and mulch and compost. That's it. Hi, Jack. My question is about non-GMO versus organic. Which is better? I see a lot of brands in the stores now advertise as organic, 
And I see a lot of other brands advertise as non-GMO, but I don't see too many advertise as organic and non-GMO. I just want to get your opinion on which do you think is better. Thanks a lot. Love the show. Talk to you later. Bye. Well, instead of worrying about what I think is what's better initially, let's start out with what is, right? Because what is is what's really important here. So the reason you don't see an organic labeled product also marketed as non-GMO, it would be like saying we have wet water. Because at least for now, if it's organic, it is non-GMO. You, 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 so all organic is non-GMO, but many things that are non-GMO are not also organic. There's an organic standard that, that products have to be grown to or produced to, and there also is a government extortion fee, I mean uh, license fee, uh, and record-keeping and things like that have to be filed with the government to sell something as organic. So I can grow stuff in my backyard that's, that's you know, two times better than organic, but unless I play the game with the government, I can't call it organic. Non-GMO simply means there's no GMO used in this product, and sometimes that's a game, and sometimes it's reality. When is it a game? Non-GMO wheat, okay, That's like saying we have wheat wheat, because as of right now, for the time being, there is, except for some that escaped by accident, no one knows how, but there is no approved GMO wheat on the market. So that's also like saying a chicken was raised without antibiotics. Well, you can't raise a chicken with antibiotics. So it's saying, like, this chicken was raised legally when you say no antibiotics or harm. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, antibiotics they can do, but no hormones. You cannot use hormones to raise chickens. It's illegal. Um, so when you say no hormones used in the raising of this chicken, what you're actually saying is we raise the chicken legally. Where when you say no antibiotics, you mean you didn't give it antibiotics because you can. But what they're doing to be clever now is they actually inject the chicken when it's still in the egg with the antibiotics with a megadose that takes it through its 38 days of misery in the chicken house of ours uh, with, with a loaded up dose of antibiotics. But it's antibiotic free because the chicken itself never got antibiotics. That's the kind of games they play. So when you see something like the celery's non-GMO, well, duh, there's no GMO celery. So some products, we are, if you know what is an a, a available from a genetic modified standpoint, then you know that anything that's not one of those it instantly is non-GMO. So what's be, because there's demand for non-GMO now, what a lot of manufacturers are doing is if the, the ingredients in their product are all things that are not yet being made genetically modified. If there's no corn um, or, or rice or soy in a product, it's probably non-GMO if it's a, veg if it's a, you know, a, a vegan or uh, vegetarian product. Right? Now, how is an egg a non-GMO egg? That just means the chickens were not fed genetically modified food or feed. So you could feed your chicken non-GMO feed, but it could be feed that's also not organic. So if it's conventionally cropped and you're getting your main protein from something like peanuts, and peanuts are generally non-genetically modified um, for now, then that could be a non-GMO feed, but it could still be conventionally grown. Or not, not every ingredient in there could be um, organic. So another thing you might see a feed manufacturer do, if they're going to include some corn in their feed, they might even source an organic feed corn. But there might be another product in that feed that's non-GMO, but it's also not organic, like peanut. So by mixing that together, you still have a non-GMO feed. The 
the product's not 100% organic, so we can't call it organic, but we can market it under non-GMO. So that's a legitimate way of doing non-GMO. So what you're seeing is manufacturers put that non-GMO label on a lot of food because people have now been convinced that everything you eat has genetic modified uh, food in it. You know, we don't want GMO this and that. Well, that, that's not GMO. You know, people are worried about a genetically modified pepper. So far, we don't have one of those. So by calling a pepper non-GMO, you're calling it a pepper pepper until such time as the evil people at Monsanto get that out. Does that make sense? So you have to take that, that claim of non-GMO into context. And, and so what I mean by that is if you have a product that does contain corn or does contain, contain soy, and you want to eat a product that cont contains soy or corn, and then it says non-GMO, then that is a, a valid argument or a valid marketing piece from that manufacturer that we have used a non-GMO thing. But if it's a product that just wouldn't be GMO in the first place, then it doesn't really buy you anything. Okay, so now what's better? I think you can do horrible things in horrible ways and still have a product be called organic. And I think you can do wonderful things and have your product be organic. So that's more about how is the product produced. And you have to research that for yourself. When you get a mass-produced food, it's impossible to find out. So here's what I think as far as what is better. I would rather eat a chicken grown by a local producer, even if that chicken eats feed that would be considered GMO feed, then I would rather eat that than a chicken that's factory farmed organically. I think the quality of those two, even though, and I would prefer the non-GMO feed in the local chicken, but if you could, you can either go to the store and buy an organic chicken, or you can buy a pasture-raised broiler out here that's getting 40% of its diet from the pasture, 60% from the feed, and one piece of that feed is genetically modified conventional feed. Not perfect, but don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. So, so kind of my order, the, the, the best food I produce for myself. I know everything about it. I've made any concessions voluntarily, and I know what I've done. The next best thing is a non-genetically modified product that's produced locally. Okay. The next thing after that would be, uh, you know, a a local organic product, right? And then would be a product that may or may not contain some GMO components, but it's still produced locally. Only when I run out of all my local options am I going to go outside of the fold. And then it would be a product that I know how it was produced, where it was produced, and what went in it. And I'm okay with that. Then organic, right, would be the next best thing because I know I'm getting non-GMO. Then if I can't find the product in organic where I can't afford it or whatever, and I've exhausted that, if it's a product that is generally using GMO ingredients, but I'm going to go outside organic, now I'm going to go to a non-GMO version of the product, and then and only then, if I can't find anything else to eat, am I going to buy conventionally made feed or food off the general market. So that's kind of my order and my thought process, and that's why there's confusion about this whole labeling. And it, that's why I think it would be better if there's going to be a labeling standard, label what does have GMO in it. Because, again, many things that you say are non-GMO, it doesn't really matter. Because nothing like that has GMO in it yet. Primarily, most of our genetic modified crops today, I think there's a papaya, there's a pineapple, a cucumber. I think those there's three of those. They're not very prominent. Uh, there might be a GMO tomato. There are GMO potatoes, but you generally don't see them sitting on the shelf of the store. Um... And then you have corn, 
rice, and soy. Those are the three big ones. Those are the big monocrop, huge cash crops. That's where your problem is. If you see a product that's not labeled non-GMO and it has corn in it or soy or, or rice, it's GMO uh, 99.9% of the time. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Grant in Los Angeles, and I have a question regarding emergency route planning in urban areas. Uh, background, I live in the Los Angeles area about five miles northeast of downtown. Uh, my work commute uh, is down towards the LAX airport area. It's about 15 miles southwest of downtown. Um, so uh, my daily commute takes me right through the heart of downtown Los Angeles. Um, being in Southern California, one of the big disasters we prep for is earthquakes. And my my short shortest commute route involves long stretches of elevated freeways, which could be severely impacted uh, in a major earthquake. Uh, my shortest routes home... Uh, not on those freeways, both on foot and by vehicle, will take me through some of the lovely California neighborhoods with names like Compton, Watts, and South Central L.A. Um, in the short term, I can hold up at my sister-in-law's near work, um, but I'm really going to want to get home quickly uh, in an earthquake quake situation. Uh, my question is, how do I go about planning around uh, the factors of geography, distance, safety, and urgency? Uh, how much longer should I make my, my emergency routes home Uh, to avoid dangerous areas, um, should I try to walk these routes uh, as practice at some point? Uh, just kind of some things I'm mulling over in my head and trying to get a get a grip on. Uh, thanks for all you do. Uh, hope to hear from you soon. Cheers, bye. This sounds really complicated, but it's actually not. It's actually quite simplistic in figuring out how to deal with this, but. That doesn't mean you'll like the, the, the results that you could end up in. See, so starting out with that, when we prepare for disasters, our, our whole concept would be, well, hopefully there won't be one, but there could. And if there is one, then I may have to do something that's uncomfortable or dangerous, but it's less dangerous than the alternative of doing nothing. Or I may be choice, faced with choice A versus B. And the one I'm going to take is the one with the best odds under the circumstances at the time of getting me to safety or keeping me alive, or saving the lives of other people. That's just a concrete reality, and nothing you ever do, nothing you ever say, no piece of equipment you ever buy will change that dynamic of human mortality. That's it. We are fragile beings, you and I. We, we really are. The, the greatest uh, toughness we have, if we truly have toughness, is mental, it's not physical. Because the strongest man can be brought to his knees or killed instantly in seconds by a tiny, weak person with a gun that shoots him in the back of the head. And the strongest man in the world, the, the toughest warrior, the guy that can go on TV and beat up 20 people in the MMA ring in 20 fights in 20 minutes, if an oak tree falls on him, he's just as dead as the weakling. And if, a, if the upper level of a freeway falls on you, you're dead. Okay, unless you're, you know, you're lucky or in some little sick. But I'm just saying, if you are between two pieces of pavement... With the full weight of the upper one on you, you're dead. So that's a fundamental reality. And the reason I kind of drive it home a little bit is so you understand the advice that I'm about to give you. So this is what you would do no matter where you lived, whether you lived next to you know really dangerous hoods or not. doesn't matter. You're going to determine every viable uh, route from where you are to where you would need to be. And that may also involve determining routes that don't take you home. They take you to that point of safety with a relative or a friend that you can hole up with for a while till you figure out what to do next. I'm going to be in a hurry to get home. Not if it's going to get you dead. 
Not if it's going to get you dead. Well, I want to take care of my family. You can't take care of your family if you're dead. Okay, so you identify every route, and then in all those routes, you identify all of the risks associated with those routes. And you catalog those risks, and you catalog the most risky areas, you catalog the time of travel, etc., based on factors like traffic, time of day, disasters, no disasters, things like that. As far as, do, do I think you should be strolling through Watts or something like that uh, as a test run? Probably not. Probably not. Um, but you can still determine those routes, because you're only going to go on foot if you have no choice. And you're only going to go on foot if you have no choice, and going on foot gives you a better chance of survival, safety, security, than just staying the hell where you are. You're not going to go just because you want to. That's not how disasters work. You do what makes sense. So you've cataloged that. We, we run those scenarios, and then we have to be at peace with the reality, because what you may decide is this literally sucks, and if things start to look bad, maybe I just don't need to be working in Los Angeles anymore. And I know you'd say, Jack, that's easy for you to say, Because you don't have to have a job here. And I agree. I completely agree. So then you have to find the point of balance where you say this is worth the risk or not. Where that leads next. Okay, if an earthquake happens, that is generally unforeseen. Everybody's happy. Boom, right? When you talk about the overpasses, I remember very clearly in the middle of a World Series game, there was an earthquake. Everybody in the baseball stadium, including the pitcher, was out on the mound. just stood there like, oh, yeah, another earthquake. And it stopped, and everybody thought it was no big deal. And miles of a certain you know, du dual-stack highway had collapsed during that earthquake. But what happened? People didn't start rioting and looting. People went and pulled ladders off of wrecked trucks and climbed up into the overpasses and helped other people get out. So in general, earthquake is one of those things that people tend to actually help each other, and, and, and we need to, you know, hopefully that's the situation we're in. And that's like one of the things that could happen in your area that is totally unforeseen. What are the other big risks in your area? Some sort of weather event. Not a lot of big-time weather events in that area, but it's possible. Definitely foreseeable. Forest fire, mudslides, definitely foreseeable. Generally, you can see it coming. Riots due to some sort of political thing or law enforcement, like we had with the L.A. riots, okay, Rodney King foreseeable, right? So the, 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 the thing you need to be doing is tying into things like local scanner applications. So like uh, uh, Radio 5.0 is an app that I have on my iPhone. LAPD is on there. Um, uh, LA County Sheriff's Department is on there. So keeping an eye on what's going on and what you want to do then is in any instance where possible, you get your ass out of there before everybody else does. And that makes it less likely you have to make a really crappy decision like the only way I can get home is through here and things are bad enough here or things are so much in need at home, I need to do this. But that's what it's always going to come down to. There's no predetermined, I'm going to do this or that or this, and this is why I'm going to do those things. Every disaster is different. And we have to make a determination. Well, I'm in a hurry to get home. Why? i got to take care of my wife. Where's your wife? She's at work. Is her area that she's in right now dangerous? No. Tell her to effing stay there. And you figure out how to go somewhere else. And you can get, you can, I mean, spending a day apart won't kill you, but getting shot will. This is how you have to think about this. So I know I sound like I'm being a little bit tough with that. And it's a very fair and reasonable question. I'm not getting tough with you. I'm getting tough on the concept. This is how you think about survival. You don't do shit just because you want to. You don't do shit just because it's emotionally telling you you have to do it. You have to use logic. An example is there was a very bad tornadic storm. Uh, one year here in Texas. It was the one that blew out 
uh, the, uh, the, the, the building that the Riata restaurant was in, I think it was a life insurance or a bank build, bank one, I think it was a bank one building in Fort Worth. This was a bad storm. It split into two cells and we had tornadoes, multiple tornadoes on the ground at the same time. I'm at home with my son and my wife is at a gym working out. She literally jumps in the car and without knowing it, there's a tornado on the ground. She drives around the tornado. Like it's, it's going catty corner between one intersection and the next. And she's going through those intersections around the tornado. She missed it by minutes and probably would have been killed if she was on the road when that tornado came across the road because I had to get home to my son. We had a very long talk about not doing shit like that ever again, right? Because that's an emotionally driven decision. If you have a tornado on the ground, and you're in a solid structure, you hunker the hell down until it passes, and that way you can actually get home. And this is survival thinking, not survival acting or survival reacting. Reaction is for the critical moment when you have to. You're there, person walking by you doesn't look like a threat, all of a sudden there's a blade coming at your gut. We have to react in that instance. But it's better to identify that threat from across the road and prevent that through thinking instead of emotion. He's not that tough. I'm not afraid of shit. I don't care. I've got a gun. What are we going to do, pull it out and shoot him when he didn't do anything? So you think, this situation looks wrong. Let's counter it with thought. So reactionary is for the critical instance, the earthquake. Everything else, the rational thought has to be in advance and trying to react before, and even in the earthquake, once everything stops shaking and falling, now it can't just be I have to get home because I have to get home. It has to be what is my most logical recourse right now. Establish communication with loved ones, verify their safety, determine the safest thing for me to do, and take that action, and that way we can reunite, versus I have to reunite so now I'm going to end up dead because I got knocked off in Watts. Let's take another one. Jack, this is Daniel in Utah. Do you think it would be beneficial to seize the opportunity to, to develop a new public park as a food forest? If so, can you give some pointers on potential challenges? Background. A 2.5-acre lot, lot in my small town, population 6,000, is slated to become a detention pond and park. The relatively liberty-minded city council is open to suggestions, though they haven't had too much interest and will default to a grass monoculture if no better ideas put before them. With my background as a forester, arborist, and aspiring permaculture designer, I've already worked with the city on other tree plantings and have been given the go-ahead to come up with So I'm wondering, in the grand scheme of preparedness, liberty, and the greater good, is making a community food forest a worthy endeavor? Also, if I were to be approved, would it make sense to try for a food forest and detention pond combo? Snapshot of the region, high, dry, cold desert valley in southern Utah. Zone 5, silky clay loam with moderate drainage. Climax community for the site would be rabbit brush and sagebrush. Lots of prairie dogs and mice, not many deer. When the pond is full, a spillway will divert excess water into the storm drain system. Some potential challenges that I'd like input on are how to avoid plant predation, how to keep it low maintenance, what to do with fruit drop if it's not used by the community. Also, I'd like species ideas for relatively drought-tolerant living mulch that can hopefully outcompete weeds but not necessarily trees, in other words, low profile. Any other thoughts on how to make this successful would be greatly appreciated. And you're really making a difference, Jack. Thank you very much for all you do. Thanks. Okay, I'm just going to tell you that flat out there's a whole bunch of that I can't help you with. 
When you, when you start talking about what plantings to put in and what's going to do this and species and stuff like that, that's all site analysis that has to be done on site. And there's no way on God's green earth that I could give you a list of things to do like that about your bio, biome that I'm about as familiar with as the biome of Antarctica. Can't help with that. Can't do it. And it's, it's, it's not really the discussion to have with city council either. And the next thing I would probably do is take the word permaculture, stick it right in your back pocket, and not use it again. Right? Food forest, maybe. What I actually think you're better off pitching to municipalities is more of a park that has plantings that are edible and sticking more to trees and using water catchment systems and things like that because bureaucrats understand things like that a lot better than permaculture food forest. So, in other words, if we were going to build a park here, these are the trees and bushes that we would plant to make things nice and play spaces and things like that and open spaces, but we can plant these other plants that are analogs of those that actually produce medicinal and edible things. And we don't even have to really push it as being edibles, and this is how we can do it. Now, what are those plants? I don't know. That's a site analysis thing, and it has a lot to do with what resources are available as far as irrigation, water harvesting, and maintenance, etc. I agree with the low-maintenance thing, but no piece of public property is truly low-maintenance. That's not how governments work. Governments jack around with shit all the time. That's what they do. They have people on staff to go mow. So if they went monoculture green grass, they're going to have to irrigate it and they're going to have to mow it. Anything else you do is less maintenance. 50% grass, 50% trees and bushes with pathways, as long as you lay out the pathways so that their, their mowers can, can function, is less maintenance. You're going to irrigate grass, irrigate a tree. Who gives a damn? I mean, that's that's the reality of that. Now, dealing with local pest pressure and stuff like that, again, I think you're, you're in these public spaces, you're better off trying to do trees. This this um, The type of food forest that we generally think of with all these ground covers and there's mushrooms over here and there's... That doesn't work in my experience with public spaces. I did one public food forest... Uh, project in my life, and I, I will personally never do it again. It was a it was a god awful nightmare. What happened is you ended up with we had nine stakeholders that all wanted something out of an acre and a half of ground at a bus stop, and to try to appease everybody and do a good job was almost impossible. I think what what ended up being done in the end was a green space with some fruit trees and fruit bushes, and if that's where you're going to end up, then just go there. Get that done, and then you can start enhancing it from there. But, I mean, in your climate, what I can tell you is water harvesting is going to be critical. If you have irrigation, fine. Getting mulch for initial establishment and come up with a design that fits the community, not your preconceived ideas of what a food forest should be. Um, you may want to reach out to Nicholas Bertner. I believe he's established a, a public space food forest here in North Texas, so he has some experience with that, and he's the kind of guy that wants to do that kind of work. I don't want to. I don't want to work with government. I think it's a good thing, but I don't want to do it. I, I can do so much more without dealing with government than I can do dealing with government. It's not worth my time. If a person knows how to work and manipulate and work with and you know be diplomatic with the apparatus of government, they can actually get a lot done for good. 
But you have to be a certain personality type, and I'm not that type. My view would be, here's this piece of land, this is what you should do with it, this is actually going to work based on my analysis, and if you do anything else, it probably won't work that well. That doesn't go over good with bureaucrats. But, but I mean, that's what I would look at, more of a park space with edible plantings. And anything you do to create enhanced ecosystems is good. It doesn't have to... Why does it... It's just another thing I think we're stuck on now with these public projects. Food forest, food forest, food forest. Okay, look. Um, then you get... Well, who gets the food? First come, first serve? Is there some sort of rationing, what have you? Where if we can actually start creating biodiversity, some edible product, some product could be medicinal, then it's not so in your face that like there's a whole bunch of apple trees here. So everybody wants to fight over them. You create kind of this evolving ecosystem that the people that are switched on enough to realize there's something harvestable there, they can go harvest that. I mean, I don't know. This isn't really in my wheelhouse. Again, one experience, done. Um, I did the one in, in Hello, Montana. Uh, I, I, I love the people involved. I think they're doing great things. But I'll, I'll tell you, as a, as a design team member, I get the updates from them to this day, and I don't even read them. I don't even care. I, I did not like the experience of having to compromise what I knew was best for the project to try to make eight different people happy. And I, I don't know that it's even going to ever be something that I would call a food forest um, at all. I, I think it's a, a park with some fruit trees and some community gardens in it. And that's okay. That's great. And and, and if that's easier to do, then, then do that. I hope that helps. Uh, definitely reach out to uh, Nicholas Bertner at Working With Nature. And um, in fact, let me real quick, I'll, I'll find his website so you can get in touch with him and put that in the show notes today. And anybody else that has this question, I would talk to someone like him uh, or talk to the folks up in Montana, the people in Washington State that are actually doing it and what's working for them and what's not. But I, I can't tell you what to plant in the desert of Utah. You have to figure out what grows in the desert of Utah and plant that. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack Donovan from the Portland, Oregon area. I would uh, be very interested in hearing your thoughts. And actually, this might be better as a, as a show topic. Um, but your thoughts on raising children from an anarchist um, paradigm or perspective and how that would look, um, and maybe even especially when it comes to things like discipline. All right, Jack, um, either either one would be great. I love the show. Uh, can't say enough good things about it and the work you're doing, um, and I really like the new format as well. All right, thanks. Okay, that's a great question I want to answer, but I want to backpedal on the last two just a second here. I thought of this as I was listening to this. Number one, the route planning in a place where you might have to go through, like, you know, dangerous crime-ridden areas. If you work a job where you're generally dressed really nice and stuff like that, make sure, like, in your bug-out kit, some of the clothing you have is more like street clothing, and get out of that $300 suit before you go to that area, even possibly with a vehicle, because you may not be able to get through with a vehicle. Don't look any more out of place than you have to, all right? So think about dressing for that. Uh, the next one I said, Working With Nature, I think that was Nick Bertner's old site. His new site is School of Permaculture. I do have a link in the show notes. And if you're looking at doing public works with permaculture, it'd probably be a good starting place to uh, to start with because, again, I don't do that. I, not that I don't think it's worthy. I just 
I got a bad taste in my mouth for it. I don't do it. I don't like government. Okay, which goes right into this question. So you're an anarchist. You're raising your children. How do you do that? And I think there's a little bit of the angle of the question here. Well, since you're an anarchist, there's not supposed to be authority. How do you raise children who are good children, who stay out of trouble, etc., as an anarchist and stay true to your principles? How do you tell a child you're not allowed to do something when your entire philosophy is around not having rulers? Rulers and rules are different things. Rules, and it, it, let's, let's start out with a fundamental reality. A child, if it is to grow into an adult and live, is not born into liberty. It is born into captivity by necessity. Okay, When you bo are born as an infant, you are born into captivity. Your natural state as a, as a evolved, fulfilled, grown-up being is one of liberty, but you're born into captivity. And I'll explain it to you in a way where you completely understand it. Liberty means no one controlling anything. If you have complete liberty, you make all your own decisions. So let's take a two-day-old baby and release it into freedom in the middle of a field or a, a highway. What happens? You end up with a dead baby and a really sick person that should have never done that. I only pointed out to make the case. A child is born into captivity. Where do children sleep in general? We put them in cribs. They're small cages. When they're old enough to start moving around and stuff like that, and we need to do something, we have a thing called a play pen. A pen. Containment. Right? So there's just a natural truth to the fact that as a, a, a young individual is growing up, They need guidance and control and rules until such time as they mature enough to be able to set their own rules and their own boundaries. This is completely the case in places like the animal kingdom as well. When they started killing off all the mature elephants, all of a sudden they started having these young ju juvenile elephant bulls go into towns and like start smashing people to death. And this confused people because even people that lived there and were afraid of large animals like elephants had never experienced this before. and They didn't know what was going on. And it took a long time to figure out by removing the mature herd bulls with ivory hunting and not having these, these, these groups of older males to keep the young males in check, they went nuts and started hurting people. Does that sound familiar, America? Does it? Does it? Is that maybe why you're worried about going through a place like Compton or Watts or whatever? Because you don't have the strong, older males there to keep the young males in check. Okay? So that has nothing to do with government. That has to do with being a responsible member of your species and your community and dealing with kids. So that's how you parent. You provide enough boundary and rules to ensure that the child can progress to the point of not needing them. And that's my exact philosophy I had when I was a Republican. That's the philosophy I had when I was a Libertarian. And that's the philosophy I have now as an anarchist. That my job as a parent is to work myself out of a job as quickly and efficiently as possible with the safety and concerns of my child closest to my heart. The, the, the quicker I can remove a rule from a child, the better I'm doing my job. And that's what every parent needs to understand. Your job is to work yourself out of a job. You'll always be their, their father or their mother. But the, the role of rule setter and rule enforcer, your goal is to get out of that job as quickly. The better you do your job, the quicker you can step back. I remember having conversations with my son when he was 9, 10 years old. You can't do this, you can't do that. Why? Because here's all the things that can go wrong. Not just because I said so. In most, If I had the time, I would explain here's the consequences of doing this. 
And this is no. But I would also always end those conversations with, my hope is that by next year you have less rules. And my goal is to get you to a point as soon as possible where you have a very tiny list of rules. By the time he was a teenager, he had about five rules. That was it. That was, I mean, you know, be home by, tell us where you're going when you leave. Right? Those were key ones. Don't screw up the house. Right? And, 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 and the things that you, you know, as he got older and like a 16, 17 at a vehicle, pay for your own fuel. Don't expect us to pay for it. Be respectable, respectful to me and my home. Understand this is my home. And if I have a rule for the house, that rule applies to you when you're in it. It doesn't necessarily apply to you when you're out of it. And it worked out really well. And I, I wouldn't do much different today. Where it gets complicated is what if you're an anarchist and you have no choice but to send your child to school. And now you're dealing with the government, which you're opposed to. Well, what you teach your child at, at, at the youngest age Do what the teacher says and talk to me if anything doesn't seem right and here's some things to look out for. But as they get older and they start to understand your philosophy, then what you explain is we are making, because of circumstances, a decision that you're going to this school, for instance, or that you're going to be involved with this activity or whatever it is. And therefore, while you're there, you agree to the rules as long as they don't involve somebody being harmed or what have you, or compromising your principles of integrity while you're there. Just like I don't think certain laws that exist, but I follow them because I don't want to go to jail. I don't think I should have to pay taxes, but I pay them every year because the losses I have to, that's the system of power right now, and in certain instances we have to compromise in order to be part of society. And what we're working for is less and less of that, just like my parenting model, okay? So that's, that's how I don't see any conflict. And I think the biggest problem with people when they start asking this question, I'm not saying the caller is, but I think many people that think this is because they don't get what I've said now many times. Rules and rulers are different. So as a parent, I never wanted to be my child's ruler. What I wanted to be was their source of rules until such time as they could develop their own based on their maturity, knowledge, and understanding. Because, you, again, you, you can't let a 14-year-old boy who might be man-sized already loose with no, with no grounding and not expect that he might not do things that are violent and dangerous and stupid and harmful. Especially at that age, because men especially have certain things going on with them biologically where they grow physically faster than they grow mentally. And if you want to know the reason we have all these problems we do with young men today, it's because their fathers aren't there doing their effing job. Okay? Now, what destroyed the family? Did Satan do it? No. In that special, okay? Did a outbreak of deer flu do it? No. Hmm. Did Charlie, my dog, destroy the family unit in America? No. The government did it. And they did it in multiple ways. They've done it with the family court system. They've done it with the welfare system. They've done it with penalizing marriage. They've done it through breaking down the, 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 the social order that was voluntary 
and replacing it with one that is mandatory. They've done it by creating a situation where a woman can get pregnant and get money from a guy she gets pregnant from for the rest of her life, even if the guy that she had sex with didn't know that she was having unprotected sex because she lied to him. Now, I'm all for stepping up and taking care of your kids, but when you create a system that makes it profitable for women to be having children with no guidance from a male model in the family unit, you're going to get more of it, and you're going to get the problems we have. I know that wasn't the crux of the question, but it is the reality that we have. So this is, again, what I think you have to understand about anarchy. To be an anarchist, you have to have a higher moral standard than any other philosophy you can possibly live under. Because there, since, since authority is only authority that is granted, and you have no desire for a central authority, a government, then you have to be your own authority. And that means you have to voluntarily agree not to harm people. You have to adhere to the non-aggression principle without fear that someone else will do it. And you have to make a case for what you're doing without force and aggression of your own. It's the only political ideology where it's completely unacceptable to use force to, to make other people comply with it. I don't care if you're a libertarian. You're still saying it's okay to make people comply with your beliefs through the use of force, just less of it in less areas. Okay? That's not, I'm not putting down, I used to be a libertarian, I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying that's where you're at. So as a parent, Actually, I think every parent, no matter what your politically, political ideology is, should parent as an anarchist. And what I mean by that is the entire point of parenting is to teach the young person not to not go beat somebody up because you'll go to jail, but because it's wrong. And to instill in them that belief to the point where they won't do it because they know that it's wrong. Because they know that they should not. And if somebody then removed a law, they still wouldn't go do it if it was wrong. If that makes sense. So hopefully it does. With that, uh, let's uh, remind you guys, if you like the show, you want to support the work I do, the best way to do that is become a member of the Support Brigade. Go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more about that. That's all I'll say about that today. Uh, next up, if you want to support the show and you're like, I don't want to be part of this Members Brigade uh, because I live in another country and I don't get a lot of discounts or uh, it's just not the type of thing I do or I already am and I'd still like to do more, uh, what have you, if you shop on Amazon... Go to tspaz.com, tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z, dot com. It actually stands for the Survival Podcast Amazon, T-S-P-A-Z, right? And you'll type one less letter in. You'll be on Amazon. You buy all your stuff on Amazon you were going to buy anyway, and we get credit for the sales. And you don't have to do anything extra. You actually do one letter less of typing. That's as easy as it could ever be to help support us if you shop on Amazon, and most of you probably do. So please consider doing that. Uh, next up, let's uh, take a look at who is our featured member of the TSP Business Directory today. Remember, you can be featured in the Business Directory for as little as five bucks. Eventually get your show mentioned on the air. And if you go to tspbiz.com, you'll find other great members of this audience to do business with. And uh, if you have a business, you can get listed on there and they can find you. Make sure to do reviews of the members that you do business with. That helps everybody out.
Today's featured member is Lilac City Real Estate, a veteran-owned and operated firm out of Washington State specializing in survival retreats, permacultural properties, and homesteads. Check out their listing in the TSP Business Directory, and there'll be a link in today's show notes as well. So that kind of wraps all of that good stuff up today. I do want to remind you Darby Simpson is running a really cool um, uh, educational program, like two-day workshop, uh, up his way in June, and there's a blog post about that as well. I'll have a link to that in today's show notes. So if you're up in that part of the Midwest, you may want to go out. I mean, it's just an amazing thing that he's put together up there, uh, very similar to the ones that we do here at TSP Ranch and on Mile Farm. If you're anywhere near central Indiana, you really want to think about going to this thing. It's going to focus mostly on uh, meat production. The food's going to be outstanding, worth, worth the cost of admission alone, 16 hours of instructional time from great instructors. That leads us to the song of the day today. Uh, the song is by Simple Minds, and it's called Don't You Forget About Me. And uh, I think many of you that are 80s children just went, ah, the Breakfast Club, right? I mean, that as soon as you hear the opening music of this song, it's kind of immediately what you think of as that you know classic 80s movie. And it really was one of the classic movies. And for those that haven't seen the movie, whatever rock you've been hiding under for how many years, I don't know. Um, it's The concept is a, a group of five young people who have both done various grievous things against the authority of the school uh, are locked up for a full Saturday of detention. And uh, the, uh, the antagonist in it is a uh, school, t uh, I think he's the dean, teacher, whatever, uh, who really is kind of a, well, he's a dick. I mean, even given the situation that these kids did make mistakes, and that's why they're there, he's a dick. And um, an egotistical dick that, that doesn't even know that he's a dick is, is really the best way I can describe him. And he gives the, 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 the young people an assignment to write an essay about who they really are, who they think they are, as a way to make them think. And throughout the day, um, they get into various little bits of uh, trouble and mischief, and they have deep conversations with each other. And you know, you've got basically a guy that's like a like a dopehead. You got a guy that's a jock. You got this chick that's like kind of this weirdo basket case. Uh, you got this you know kind of prom queen type, and you got this geek, right? And they all, they they all know each other, but they really have nothing to do with each other day to day in school because of social cliques and things like that. And in the end, the guy that's kind of the, the geeky nerd guy, they say, why don't you just write one for all of us in the hell with how many you know words he says that they're supposed to have to it. And this is actually, for those that have seen the movie, you'll probably remember this, right at the end, the, the, the letter that's written, the essay that's written on behalf of all five of these. Dear Mr. Vernon, we accept the fact that we had to sacrifice a whole Saturday in detention for whatever it was we did wrong. What we did was wrong, but we think you're crazy to make an, es to make an essay telling you who we think we are. You see us as you want to see us, in the simplest terms, in the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain and an athlete and a basket case and a princess and a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. And I think that what that kind of always meant to me was that 
for the you know the high school years, we're all going through the same crap. We all have our different ways of coping it, and these personas, the jock, the the dopehead, whatever uh, that that people put on themselves, are the way they adapt to get through that time. But in the end, we're all the same. We're all the same people, and and, and that really was what. I took away from that, especially as you mature and get out, you realize like high school's not that important. It's not a big deal. I know there's some young people listening to the show that are still in high school and you think it is. It's not. Those people that you go to school with, with very few exceptions, one year outside of school, you'll never see those people again. And whatever that you thought was important won't be, you won't care. But we still end up in life with all of these control dramas that people use on each other, all of this struggle to be better than somebody else. Well, what we should be doing is struggling to be better than ourselves. That's what I got out of the movie. The song really doesn't do that for you, but it does take you right back to that movie and at a time in the 1980s before the Internet as we know it today, before compact discs, we still like cassette tapes, before so many things that we take for granted today. And a simpler time, honestly. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Mom!